start with prayer this morning. If you're here for the first time or the first of a few times, you're welcome. We're glad, glad that you're here, glad that you've joined us this morning. Last year, excuse me, last uh, week, almost last year, um, last week, we engaged a sermon that had to do with dominion, dominion for those who are in Christ, and uh, dominion restored through Christ. And a big part of my prayer right now is going to be that we continue in dominion. We want this to be the year of dominion, uh, that we subdue the next 45 minutes or however long we spend together, that we take captive our thoughts to properly engage what we're engaging, that we're not, this isn't a talky-talk. I don't do talky-talks. I'm not up here to share some funny stories or quaint tearjerkers. I'm up here to expose this book because I believe that we'll have life by it, that if we abide in it and if we eat it, if we walk in it, I believe it's how we come to know and enjoy our God so that we can take captive and subdue these next few minutes. I realize some of you may be here because somebody dragged you here. I totally get that. Some of you may be here just because you feel like, oh, it's Sunday morning, I'm supposed to go to church. I understand that too. But let's be real intentional about taking dominion over these next few minutes. Okay, let me pray. <clears throat> God, I'm thankful for the opportunity for us to enjoy you in these next few minutes. I'm thankful um, that you give us the means, a Bible that we can read, a Bible that's true, uh, that's just living, and it just divides us, divides our, our beings, helps us understand who you are and who we are and what you've done for us and in us, in Christ. Lord, I'm thankful for this book that just the obvious stuff, like that pretty much everybody in here can have one, that they're just available, that it's in our language. I pray that we would not take those things for granted this morning as we seek to take and walk in dominion in these next few minutes. Lord, a couple of specific things I want to pray about before we engage your message for this people this morning. I want to pray for uh, Rick and Julie Prettyman at Aldersgate. I want to pray for the church and also pray for their leadership. Uh, Rick being the only uh, leadership at, at the church that I, that I know and uh, the pastor. I want to pray for his worship, first of all. I pray that you will guard his heart as you would guard mine, the other elders at Crosspoint, the other pastors in Greenville, from doing a J-O-B. Lord, I pray that you will quicken us to the gravity of the work that we're about. And that week by week, we can first endeavor to know you and enjoy you. Secondly, that Rick and Julie, as well as the rest of us, can walk in what we're engaging in our homes first. That preacher's kids don't have to be preacher's kids because they're seeing the gospel lived out at home seeing Christ enjoyed, seeing the gospel on display and how men love their wives and how wives follow their husbands. Lord, I just pray for that, not just for Rick and Julie or myself, but the, the other pastors in this community, realizing there's so many opportunities for Satan to disassemble or cripple the message before it ever even reaches hearts because it's not being run through us first. Lord, I pray for real purchase in Rick and Julie. I pray that the gospel will overwhelm them and fuel their parenting, fuel their relationship with each other, and fuel their ministry. 
Lord, in whatever way that we can serve with Aldersgate or encourage Aldersgate or cheer for Aldersgate, ultimately we want your fame and your renown in this church. And we pray that we can be responsive to walk in whatever thing you put in front of us. If it's unofficial or official, if it's just working next to somebody that may be part of that church, encouraging them to be about eternal work. I pray that you will open our eyes to that, that we'll walk in those opportunities. Also this morning, Lord, we want to pray for somebody on city council here in Greenville. I want to pray for Velma Del Bosque Abdi. Uh, Lord, we want to ask that you'll use Velma for your own glory, that if she doesn't know you, that she will come to know you. Uh, Through men like Brian Heron or other believers that may be on the council, that, that she can see what worship looks like and how that even impacts the decisions that we make as a community. If she can smell the aroma of worship as Brian um, walks with her or other believers walk with her, that she can enjoy that. If she does know you, Lord, I pray that she will be a sweet aroma on the council and through the council and in the, leadership, the decisions that are made as the leadership of this community. Lord, we pray that the gospel will be furthered because of our leadership in this community. Lord, in these next few minutes, we just turn them over to you. So thankful for dominion earned, properly earned, well-earned, earned finally and completely, and yet not quite realized. I pray that this morning that we can understand the disparity, that we'll have hope, and that we'll know how to respond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to orient you to the text, maybe a little bit, some as we go, but at least after I I read the text for sure, we'll just see how this goes. I'm going to begin in chapter 2, verse 5. We've just completed four verses that have to deal with exhortation, sort of encouragement, and we're moving back to exposition, exposing truths. Um, So we're climbing right back into verses 5 through 9 this morning for yet another meal. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, we realize he's been speaking about Christ. This reference is a Psalm 8 reference, but he's speaking about Christ. And putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Well, we enjoyed that last week. He earned what we couldn't earn. He redeemed what we couldn't redeem. He left nothing outside of his control, but here's the problem. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Just to kind of reacquaint you with who's receiving this letter, I think it's important for us to go back and sort of touch that periodically. This letter was written by a preacher, pastor, to his church. And this church, we believe, was likely in Rome. This church, we believe from the way the the book unfolds or the letter unfolds, was written to Hellenistic Jews. 
Hellenistic Jews means a group of Jews that aren't native Jews to Israel, Jerusalem. They live in what's called the diaspora. They were part of the dispersion through different exiles or different times of persecution. They dispersed into the, the, what at this time is the Roman Empire. And we believe that these guys are in Rome because of some of the things that unfold. We also believe that the, the book or the letter was written somewhere between 64 A.D., in 70 A.D. We'll come back to that later because that's important for what we're seeing. These Hellenistic Jews would have had a very, um, I, would just, I guess I would say, complete understanding of the Jewish story. They would have been inundated with um, the Old Testament as we know it, the minor prophets, the major prophets, uh, the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament. They would have, um, that, those would have been secondhand knowledge for us or for them. And the problem is for us, they are a little bit distant. I fear for us, many of us, not all of us, but many of us, most of our Christian lives we've spent neck deep in the New Testament, which is great. But the problem is sometimes we can find ourselves a little bit ill-equipped with the rest of the story that these Hellenistic Jews would have known. I said secondhand, firsthand knowledge. They would have been very acquainted with these things. So in some ways, in preaching through Hebrews, we have to almost become... Jewish. We have to almost, at least in our understanding of this old story, we have to become almost like what today would be Messianic Jews. So it's a cool book that's going to help us sort of bring together the Old and New Testament to where we see a synthesis in one big story, a cohesion. We're picking up in this passage in verses 5 through 9, picking back up with Christ's supremacy over the angels. The angels to the Hellenistic Jews would have been a very important being. They served an important role in Old Testament story. They're not that big of a deal to us necessarily, um, but to these guys, they would have been very important. So in some ways, we've had to kind of climb back in why they're important, and we're moving back into that argument of Christ's supremacy over even the angels. The time frame that he's speaking of here is important. The first verse there that we've considered in verse 5, he says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. A key phrase, the world to come. This is not heaven as we think of it now. Some of you who've lost a loved one, who have this thought of that loved one being in heaven, they are, we trust. If they are in Christ, they're in heaven. They're in what Christ would have referred to, to the th- or what he referenced to the thief on the cross as paradise. You will be, be with me today in paradise. But this is not the new heavens and new earth that's being spoken of here. This world to come is a new heavens, a new earth that's going to be and is being recreated for our dwelling for eternity. This is a temporary dwelling where we are here now. We know that. And heaven, where this staging area, this paradise, where our loved ones may be right now, That's temporary as well. What he's speaking of here is the world to come, the the word that I introduced you to last week, the eschaton. Now, the central quote of this passage is Psalm number 8. The key point of Psalm 8 is marvel at the shocking role that God has given man, the role of dominion. That's the central point of Psalm 8 that we engage together on Christmas morning. That man has dominion at all is a marvel. 
I, I introduced this thought to you last week, and I'm going to say it again. Psalm number 8 has some application to every single man, even unbelieving man. When an unbeliever teaches their dog to sit, they are exercising dominion. This psalm is having some application to them as they are in some ways subduing and exercising dominion over a critter. Psalm number 8 has some application to every man. It has much and actually tremendous application to those who are in Christ. That's where we landed last week. And it has complete and total and perfect application to Christ. Some application to every man. Much application to those who are in Christ. Total application to Christ Himself. Now, the key point of this Hebrews 2 passage, verses 5 through 9, connecting to this Psalm 8 passage, is that man has damaged dominion or and or. Remember that old-fashioned hymn phrase, or and or? We've proved ourselves or and or. He's given us dominion, and we mess it up. He gives us dominion, and we mess it up. It is the human story. And as a result of that, God subjected the past world and to some degree our present world to angels. That wasn't the original design in the beginning. God turned to Adam and Eve said, I'm giving you dominion over all of this. When Adam and Eve sinned, they're evicted from the garden. Cherubim guard the garden. That's the first picture that we have of angels having a unique role of some sort of oversight even over humanity. But Christ's work changed everything. He redeemed dominion for mankind. He rescued it. He purchased it. And the world to come, this world that we speak of, this future heavens and earth, has been subjected to Him, not to angels. It's been subjected subjected to Him and those who are in Him by association. That was the point of last week's message. He earned dominion, and we have the opportunity, the ability, by association, to walk in the dominion that he earned now. This may be a thought that you've never really considered, but I want you to know that dominion is sweet. I don't imagine that many people are sitting around thinking about dominion at the end of the day, but when you lay your head on your pillow at night, this this may be an especially man thing. I bet ladies do this too, but I can't, I don't know how a lady thinks all, usually. But I know how men often think. When you lay your head on your pillow at night and you close your eyes and you think about all that you managed to accomplish that day, say it's one of those good days where you're like, man, I got it done today. My to-do list or my honey-do list, I was checking those things off. I laid my head on my pillow at night. And I exercised dominion over this day. I subdued this day and I enjoyed that. That's a taste of dominion. Dominion is good. We were made for it. It's sweet. This, was a, this last week was a tough week for canines. I know of three folks that had to put down sweet old friends. I know of the Willinghams. Uh, the Walkers, uh, Jody and Denise, had to put down their old friend, and we had to put down our old friend of 16 years on Thursday. And I think about God's timing 
of losing a, a dog. It's not like losing a, a person, but a dog in many ways can become part of the family. Many of you know that. And you get close to them, and it's traumatic to lose them. And I'm processing some of this dominion context that we're in right now and thinking about the 16 years that I had with this old dog. I didn't have him the first year. He was given to us as a one-year-old. But the 15 years of friendship and relationship that I had with this dog, teaching him to sit, teaching him to stay, putting a collar around his neck, petting his head, shooting a duck and him retrieving it and bringing it to me. It was 15 years of enjoying dominion. It was a little taste of dominion. It was a little taste of what Adam and Eve must have had before they messed it all up. And it's a little taste of what we're going to have in the new heavens and new earth. So enjoy that dog. Name that dog like Adam named the critters. Teach him to sit. Teach him to heal. Ride that horse. Do those things and connect them to worship. Because that's God's blessings to us to give us a chance to enjoy the sweet taste of dominion, the sweet taste of what the new heavens and new earth are going to be like every day in every way. Dominion is sweet. We were made for it. Last week, we ended with this thought. If everything has been put in subjection to Him, if He redeemed dominion, and if we by association can walk in that dominion, why don't we see dominion in all areas of our lives? Why don't we see dominion in our workplaces? Why is it often the feeling of one step forward, two steps back? Why don't we see dominion necessarily in the way our families are going, in the way our relationships are going, in the way our marriages are going? Why don't we always see dominion in our communities? Why do we sometimes see and often see, and here's the word that I'm going to be using often this morning, a disparity between the dominion that he supposedly earned and the dominion that we can supposedly walk in and our bodies. Think about that for a minute. Does anybody absolutely and completely have their eating under control every day of the week? Anybody? Why do we see this disparity in our finances? Why do we look back sometimes and we say, man, I blew it. I love Jesus, but I look back and I say, man, I blew it. I overdid that. Why do we see that disparity in our schedules? Where we look back maybe over a year or two years and we realize, man, I blew it. I spent the last two years being about things that really aren't going to matter in eternity. Why do we see this disparity? If God put everything in subjection to him and left nothing outside his control... Why do we not yet see everything in subjection to him? It's an important question. The Hebrews readers would have been acquainted with this disparity. It's not irony, because irony's funny, but disparity. Here they sit, hearing lofty truths about Christ, that Christ is heir that Christ is creator, that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, that he's the exact imprint of his nature, that he's the sustainer as he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
that he's the redeemer, paid for our sins, and that now all those things work together, point to, together toward him being seated and ruling and in session now. Yet they're looking around them in between the years 64 and 70 AD and saying, man, I hear it, but I sure don't see it. If you're familiar with the Roman story at all, you know that we believe at this time Nero was ruling over the Roman Empire. And these guys, Christians, faced severe persecution. They may have lost family members because of their faith. Ironically, the worst persecution may not even have been at the hands of Rome, but at the hands of Jews who believed that they betrayed Yahweh by trusting in Christ. I read this. I read open persecution, imprisonment, and killing of Christians in Rome was started by the Roman Emperor Nero in 64 AD. He blamed the Christians for burning Rome when most people believe now in retrospect that he actually burned Rome. I read that he had Christians captured and burned in his garden at night as a source of light. So imagine you're receiving this letter where he says, nothing outside his control, everything's in subjection to him, but we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. And you're going, yeah, no duh. Seriously, I don't see everything in subjection to him. I'm I'm thinking about my parents who served as torches in Nero's garden. Serious disparity, greater disparity than we face, but disparity. This is a rough period in the life of this church. They may have thought, man, no kidding, we don't see everything in subjection to him. Our property, our lives, everything is in fact, or what it seems, in subjection to Nero. I like the thought of all things being in Christ's control, but it sure doesn't look like it. As we hear these words, I don't know of anybody's family member that served as a torch recently, at least in our context, but as we hear these words about everything being in place in subjection to him, nothing outside of his control, we may wonder, though, at the same time, why do we not yet see everything in subjection to him? We can see places where we see the same disparity. Why is Channing Edwards still sick? Why are we praying for her and her family because she's not well? Why are we praying or why are we remembering in some ways? Why did we have a front row seat to the death of a friend five years ago, Keith McCord, some of you know. We watched him die. I think I visited about 30 minutes before he passed away with his six-month-old in the room. I think Bill Ruth were there and Deborah were there right after he passed away. Why did we have a front row seat to that? It seemed like a disparity when you think about everything's in subjection to him. He's in control. Didn't look like it. Why did Zach and Jean lose a son? Why did Sherry lose a husband? Shannon lose a brother? Kendra lose a father? Marie lose a daughter? Bill lose a sister? Mike lose a brother? And Sheila lose a father? Why in eight years have we gone through severe grief over those sort of situations? Seems like a disparity and one that we need to talk about. Why in eight years have we also watched marriages come apart? 
If you've been here for any period of time, you've been paying attention, you've watched it happen, and it's a heartbreaking thing to watch. And we're not talking about people to say, I hate Jesus. In a lot of cases, we're talking about people to say, I love Jesus, but it's not helping. In eight years, I can't tell you how many times it's, I can, but I won't. We've watched, ironically, the surprise reality of women leaving their husbands. Women pining for a man that would love Jesus. And about the time he starts to love Jesus, he's not the bad boy anymore, so I'm gone. That's a disparity. If he's in control and everything's in subjection to him, man, we're looking at that saying, well, that wasn't in subjection to him, or at least it didn't seem. Why are some people who love Jesus still plagued with financial difficulty? It's a disparity. Why did a few hundred people lose their job at Rubbermaid, some of which we know? They love the Lord. They're seeking to walk in dominion, and yet they're going to be looking for work. Why do I, who, you know, I'm saturating myself in this book. I hope you know that. I, you know that I don't do a talkie-talk every week. That this, this, is, this is the product of hours 30, 40, sometimes more hours worth of study each week? If that's the case, why do I still get short with Christy and the kids? I mean, really? I'm just being really honest. That's a disparity that I see. Why am I still prone to medicating with food when I'm nervous? Anybody else do that? When I'm happy, (laughs) when I'm sad, when I'm everywhere in between. It's a disparity that's hard to really figure out. Why, if my Savior earned dominion, and we have the ability to walk in dominion, why then did four elders leave two kids visually impaired after fervently praying and faithfully praying over them for sight? Why were they just impaired afterward as they were before? Why can I see a new little grave out my garage door where my friend of 16 years rests. Why the disparity? Why are there still so many situations where it seems that he doesn't have dominion? Or where it seems that we don't have dominion? Some tough questions. And man, the Hebrews preacher, Hebrews writer, he deals with them. He's my new best friend right behind John because he deals with these questions. Often considered or often thought about, but maybe never engaged. So he's got some goods for us this morning. Three things. This microphone is driving me crazy this morning. All right, let me see if I can fix this. Three things. I'm going to give you a map of where we're going in the next couple minutes. He gives us three things to equip us with the, for the disparity, to help us with this disparity. Okay, so if you're a note taker and you make outlines and stuff, you're going to make three things. And here's the big bullet points. Something first that we should realize, something second that we should see, and something third to remember. First to realize, second to see, third to remember. First, let's deal with what we should realize First, we need to realize this subjection thing is a process. 
If you're still in Hebrews, which you should be, look at verse 13 of chapter 1. This is at the end of sort of a, this Hebrews author just goes back and grabs a bunch of these Old Testament passages, and here he grabs Psalm 110, and he says this, he writes this, he says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, and watch this next word, until, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Until is an important word because it implies that something is going on there. Some process is taking place that it doesn't happen immediately. You get a sense also, too, when he's saying that this is what he's talking about here is the world to come. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, implying that this this, um, oversight, this responsibility has now been given to Christ for the world to come. We have to put things in context and realize that he's speaking of the world to come. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's speaking of the world to come, but he's not speaking of the world to come only. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us sort of a bird's eye view of the plan of subjection at least knowing the last thing that will be put under his feet, and at least giving or reinforcing that this is a process. Beginning in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is dealing with the Corinthians on the thought or the notion that there was no resurrection. Someone had presented them with some false teaching that there was no resurrection and that there will will not be a resurrection for those who are believing. In verse 20, he says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet." The thing we need to realize from passages like this and from where we are in Hebrews chapter 2 is we need to realize there is an already and a not yet to this thing. He's already said all things are in subjection under him, but there's the implication that it's not yet fully realized. The kingdom has come, but yet it's still coming. This thing is advancing. It's moving in our direction. Stuff is being visibly lined up with what's already true and reckoned all through God's people walking in our mandate, through walking in our great commission. Matthew chapter 6, don't turn there. I'll just flip there because I'm really close. It's a familiar passage to you, should be. How do we pray? Listen how Jesus teaches them to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Notice the trajectory of the prayer. I'm praying heaven down because that's the way things are moving. The way things operate up there are the way things we're praying will be operating here. The things will come under dominion. Our prayers are to reflect this movement and this direction of all things being placed in subjection under His feet in reality with the very last thing being placed under His feet being death. First, we have to realize when we see those disparities, it's a process. It's a process. Some of you who've wrestled maybe your whole lives with eating problems or whatever, that's just one that's always on my plate, pun intended. Maybe he'll give it to you in time. If the kingdom of heaven is moving in our direction, if you're praying, God, I pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that it be done on earth as it is in heaven. The way you operate up there, that you operate this way and have dominion over me and that I'll have dominion over this. It's a process. And it's not a microwave. It's a slow cooking oven. And it takes time and we have to be patient with it. We're praying for it to move this way. The second thing, The first thing is that we should realize subjection is a process. Secondly, while we don't yet see all things in subjection to him, he gives us some goods in the next verse. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2 if you're not there. The end of verse 8, he says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but... We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. While we don't yet see all things in subjection to him, there are some things we can and do see. That's where he takes them. And those things, let's consider them first. We do see Christ made a little lower than the angels. It's the surprise grace of the incarnation. We had some interesting email with folks back and forth over the Christmas holidays who have family members or friends that have some difficulty with celebrating Christmas. And what we considered, Scott and I talked through it a good bit because we were in the office there as he received those emails or I received those emails. We consider, man, it's a yearly opportunity to remember and intentionally enjoy that God took on flesh. To think of the scandal that he would stoop and take on flesh. Emmanuel, that he would be God with us. This should never be assumed. We have an opportunity to yearly enjoy the marvel of his birth. That an invisible and previously unseeable white-hot holy God would somehow become visible and would explain and disclose the character of our God. That's something we can see. We don't yet see everything in subjection to Him, but you know what? We can see Christ, God in the flesh. We can see Bethlehem. We can see the marvel of the incarnation. Second thing we see right from this passage, we see Him crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. The victory was won, and he subjected Satan and his minions to open shame. 
Colossians says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. The way I would paraphrase that, He made them chumps by triumphing over them in Him, and that via the cross. While we don't yet see, see all things in subjection to Him, we certainly see Christ having God having taken on flesh in the person of Christ, and we see that He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We see it. And the third thing that goes back to verse 8, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside of His control. We see that all things were reckoned in subjection to Him, and nothing is outside of His control. Period. He is seated and in session. You remember that reality that we considered in the first chapter? See Him seated and in session at the right hand of the Father. That's a good word. After making purification for sins, what did He do? He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. We can see that. The Hebrews writer is writing to people who their family members may have been torches in Nero's garden. And he's saying, man, I know you can't see everything in subjection to him just yet, but you can see these things. So look here is what he's saying. I think Paul shares his burden that they would see that his people Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see this passage. The burden that the Ephesians would see the right things. Ephesus also being in the Roman Empire, they may have experienced some of these problems as well. Look at chapter 1. Paul is sharing the content of his prayer. For this people, he says, for this reason, because I've heard, I'm in verse 15, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's what I'm praying for you, Ephesians, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's, what he, that's the same sort of concept there. Look at the right things. Praying that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who, who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Same concepts. Same concepts. You're going to see a mess in your lifetime. I guarantee it. Kids, sorry, bad news. It's coming. Unless Christ comes back. Those of us who are adults, you know it. You're going to see a mess with your eyes, but what we need to see with the eyes of our hearts is the reality of God taking on flesh in the person of Christ. We need to see, need to see the reality of Him being crowned with glory and honor through the work of the cross. And we just need to see Him seated and in session. Why? Even though it doesn't look like he's in charge, I see plenty of disparity. I know he's in charge because this tells me so. I trust it. I believe it. I see it with the eyes of my heart. As Paul prayed for the Ephesians. The third thing I said I would share with you today is sort of the goods to help you walk through this. First is that we realize that subjection is a process. Second, 
is that there, while we can't see all things in subjection to him, we do see some things that are good things to see. And third, we need to remember what's being implied here in Hebrews chapter 2. He's taking them back to Adam. He's taking them back to dominion. He's taking them back to the mandate, the cultural mandate that we considered last week. And he's saying, Christ redeemed this. Christ fixed this. And the way we are to walk in our new mandate, our new uh, commission, is realizing that it's the advancement of the gospel that escorts in his return. It's the advancement of the gospel that brings him back, that moves the kingdom in this direction where things that are happening in heaven will begin to happen here. It's the gospel invading places that aren't invaded. Taking the gospel where it isn't invites him back. Think, man, all you got is the gospel, and you say, yes, sir, that's all we've got. And we're not just talking about mission work here. We're talking about dominion and subduing Tuesday. We're talking about what you do in your marriage. You say, man, my marriage is a mess. I'm hopeless. It's just over. Realizing that the gospel has some answers there, that the gospel is the answer. And I'm telling you right now, it's not going to be tidy. It's not going to be three steps to a happy marriage, but I'm telling you, it is the medicine for the sickness. It is how the good, it is how the, the, the kingdom advances into your marriage. It's how the kingdom advances into your finances, into your schedules, into your health. It's how the dots have to be connected. They're all connected to him and the gospel. Taking the gospel where it isn't invites him back. It escorts him back. Escorting the gospel into your marriage. Let me tell you something. There are lots of books out there that I could read to help people with marriage issues. Like stuff, how do you fight? I mean, Christy and I have gone through some of this stuff before. Where they say, well, instead of saying, you make me feel... Or you make me mad. Instead say, I feel angry when you say it this way. Now, you said the same thing, but you said a way that's less inflammatory or less, less ugly. Now, I, I totally get that. and There's nothing wrong with that. But that really doesn't give me the goods to really work through the issue. But the gospel does. And it's not tidy. There are books, in, uh, tons of books that I could read that if I'm sitting with you to, to, to deal with marriage, marriage problems or financial problems or you know, uh, um, self-control issues or whatever it might be, tons of books that we could go to, and those books aren't trash. They're not. But saying it that way might help some, but ultimately the real medicine is going to be the gospel at its heart. It's going to be the gospel. If marriage is about Christ in the church, do you think God's going to let you get away with your marriage being redeemed and fixed apart from Christ being part of that? Doesn't sound like God. That would be making little of Jesus, wouldn't it? Man, the gospel is the central thing that brings in this, or reconciles this disparity. When you see disparity, realize that the gospel is the answer to that. The problem is it may may not be the answer in your lifetime. But it is the answer. I'm going to show you a passage about that later. 
It is ultimately the answer. Are you sick and tired of death? Then subdue Tuesday with the gospel. Death won't go away overnight, but you're inviting him back where death will be destroyed ultimately and finally. Subdue Tuesday with the gospel. Let the gospel invade your mind and your thoughts and your actions as you go about your work day. You don't have to huddle over your Bible all day. Oh, sorry, boss, I can't get to work because I'm thinking about the gospel. No, it doesn't leave you where you can't function. It just invades who you are. That's subduing Tuesday. When something in your life isn't looking like dominion, God's are yours. You've got to say to yourself, I don't know how, but I know the gospel fixes this. I don't know how, but the gospel fixes this. Maybe it will be ultimately in glory when two kids get a new set of eyes. Maybe it will be in glory when a little girl gets a brand new GI system. Maybe it'll be in glory when someone gets a new hip, a really new hip, not a replacement, or a new set of knees. Maybe it'll be in glory, but the gospel fixes all of it. Turn to Psalm 96. This is the last place I want to take you, and it's beautiful. <clears throat> Psalm 96 is like an illustration of what this third point is. It's just a great way to end this message this morning. As I read this psalm, what I would like for you to do, if you write in your Bibles some, some things I would like for you to mark, if you're okay with that, to underline the verbs. Some of you say, man, it's been a long time since I've had my English class. I'll help you out a little bit, okay? Um, underline the verbs. And even consider who the subjects are. And then consider the outcome of those subjects doing those verbs. Listen to this psalm. Oh, sing. I'll emphasize the verbs for you, okay? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. You're paying attention. You see some subjects there. You see some verbs. You see the earth as a subject. You see families as a subject. And here are the verbs. Sing, bless, tell, declare, ascribe, bring, come, worship, tremble, say among the nations. There's another one. The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. If these subjects are doing these verbs. 
If these subjects are walking by what we can see, Christ having taken on flesh, Christ crowned with glory and honor because of the finished work of the cross, Christ seated and in session, here's the outcome. Let the heavens be glad. The heavens are looking down at these families and the earth that are ascribing and singing and declaring and saying, and they're saying, I'm so glad. I'm so glad this is awesome. And the earth is rejoicing. The sea is roaring, and everything that fills it is roaring. The field is exulting in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. And here's why all creation is saying, yes, families, go. Take dominion and see what you can see. It says, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. When we do this, when the gospel invades Tuesday or invades marriage or invades schedule, and I say, you know what? My schedule is not going to be just sort of reactive. It's going to be proactive. I want to spend my time as a reflection of what my treasure is. My finances. I'm going to spend my money as a reflection of who it belongs to. I'm going to spend my efforts, my thoughts, my moments as a reflection of the greatness of the gospel. When you do that, the heavens are cheering. They're so glad. The fields are exulting and the trees are singing. Think about another verse. They're clapping their hands. Yes. They're saying, go, people. Go. Walk by what you can see. It's inviting Jesus back. He's coming back where everything will be placed in subjection to him. The last of which and the ugliest of which will be under his feet, that being death. Yes. You sick and tired of death? Subdue Tuesday with the gospel. Enjoy the gospel in that place that you thought that has nothing to do with that. Yes, it does. It's the answer. Man, the disparity is difficult. I totally understand. Maybe that's why I've kind of enjoyed this sermon, these last two, so much. Because I see plenty of disparity. If last week had just been left the way it is, then we might be walking around looking at each other saying, and I don't want to knock anybody that uses this phrase. I kind of am, but I'm not doing it on purpose. God is good all the time. I mean, you ever heard that? You may say that. If you say that, I'm sorry. I, I'm not making fun of you. Kind of am a little bit. Sometimes you're like, man, that's not good. Sometimes he doesn't seem good. Sometimes there's a serious disparity between what I read and what I see. What this message has done for me is it's taught me or reminded me not to believe every, everything that I see, and worse, not to believe everything I think. I know how the saying goes, don't believe everything you see. But my bigger problem is believing what I think. I mean, obviously what I see conditions what I think. But sometimes I really think 
my eating is uncontrollable. I think it. Sometimes I really think prayer won't help anyone. Does that scare you, alarm you to think that your pastor thinks that way? I'm sorry, I do. <laughs> you ever feel that way? You wouldn't, wouldn't share? I promise I do. Sometimes I think things that ultimately aren't true. Sometimes I think that people leave the faith as surely as they find it. Sometimes I think my efforts to love my wife and shepherd my children are futile because I mess up so often. Sometimes I really think no one's in control and I'm bouncing through life like a chance pinball with no rhyme or reason. I think this kind of stuff because I have so many reminders that we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But then my new best friend, the Hebrews preacher, writer, whoever he was, he takes me to what's really true. He says, don't believe everything you think. He takes us to what we can see. He takes us to what we should see so that we may believe what is ultimately true. We realize the rest of that stuff is a big lie. Stuff we see, the stuff we often think is a big lie. And this is ultimate reality. This is an equipping sermon for walking in dominion. If all you had was last week's sermon, your New Year's resolutions might last a week. But hopefully with this week's sermon too, you realize, man, I got next week. There's fresh mercies tomorrow morning. I've got next year, and the kingdom of God is moving in this direction. And he's coming this way, and I'm inviting him back as I yet escort him into this next problem. And it's dominion equipping so that we can press on in places where dominion seems, being keyword, seems to fail. Man. Let's live by what we can see, the incarnation, a crowned, crowned Savior with glory and honor, seated and in session. Let me pray. Lord, I pray for myself and for this people for a new and true set of eyes. Lord, I pray that you will teach us not to walk by what we see, but by what we know. Lord, I pray too that we will not even walk by what we think, but what we believe. Lord, I pray that what we think will be created and renewed and built from what you've said. Lord, I pray that that will inform how we view and how we engage Tuesday. I pray that it will inform and equip us as we walk in dominion in many things that look like they may be failing. And that when we have those little tastes of dominion, whether it's a dog that sits or a day where we didn't medicate in the kitchen, that we will ascribe to you honor and glory that we will enjoy the reality that you redeemed it through the cross, that you redeemed that day. Lord, I pray that these sort of truths will invade 
and shape who we are as a people, that they will define for us the year 2012. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we take the supper this morning, I think there's some sweet encouragement in Romans 8. Um, as we take the supper, I want you to, as I read these verses, consider that it's a supper of remembrance of the son who was not spared. Um, Christ is perfect in strength. There's no one mightier than Christ, yet he was not spared. And we gain perspective in Romans 8, 31. It says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor Things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The thing we see in these verses, it's real simple, is that we're more than conquerors when it especially doesn't look like it. It's in these things, in the persecution, in the danger, in the sword, in the hard times, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us, especially when it doesn't look like it. So then we turn over to 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is part of the process. As we are eagerly anticipating the return of Christ, we take this supper, proclaiming the death of our Lord until he returns. And we're proclaiming life that we have in him. A supper of remembrance of the son who is not spared. Proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, take and eat. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. You proclaim his death until he comes. God did not spare his son. And so I encourage you to take this with thankful hearts. Thank, take this in eager expectation of what is to come. And take this with a purpose to, to live according to the will of our Father, who did not spare his own son. Take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue in worship this morning, I pray that we would be wholehearted, and I pray that we would be completely dependent upon Christ, even to sing rightly and to give rightly. Um, I pray that you would...
um, cause us to uh, heed and hear and really take in what you have revealed to us through the preaching this morning. We thank you for dominion. We thank you for the gift of having power and strength in areas and over things that we would otherwise have absolutely none. We are extremely blessed in Christ. and We humble ourselves before you this morning. and We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Hebrews preacher is really pretty pretty good about illustrating his points later in the book. So I'm just going to close this morning. We have one other thing we're going to do, but I want to close with this passage. Just listen for some of what we considered this morning in this passage. It's such a great illustration. You're like, oh, well, why have I never seen that? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not even knowing where he's going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, you have to climb into where he's living and what he's living in. He's moved into a land. It would be like pulling up in front front of somebody's house where someone turns to you and says, this is for you, this mansion. This is all for you. And you pull up in front of you like, sweet. But you look inside, there's somebody having dinner at the table. There's a car parked in the driveway. And there's a name on the mailbox. And you're like, oh, well, that's a little complicated. That's like what this was like. He goes to this land that God's going to give him, and it's inhabited by a bunch of other people. But here's why he was able to do that. It says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's looking forward to the not yet. He's not getting bogged down on the already. He's living for the not yet. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born many descendants, or as, descendants as many as the stars of heavens and, and as the, many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Listen to this. These all died in faith. This is the faith, you know, heroes of the faith chapter. All of them died in faith. Listen not having received the things promised. They died without receiving all the not yet yet. They died. I mean, let's just consider that. They're dead. And they had plenty of heartache and plenty of trouble before they landed there. They died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having, watch, seen them and greeted them from afar. When we're living not according to what we're not yet seeing, but we're living according to what we can see, we're living in this manner. We're living for the city to come. I can't see that yet, but what I can see is Him seated, Him having taken on flesh, Him crowned with glory and honor, and He's in session right now. I can see that. People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared them for a city.
just a great illustration of where we've gone this morning. Thankful that uh, the Hebrews writer provided that later on in the story. Next, I would like to, um, well, let me encourage this one thing before we have, Steve and Lori, why don't y'all come on up? And Scott, why don't you come up too? Um, what I would encourage you to do, if you're not part of a small group, that's where this stuff finds purchase for me and my family. Now, we talk about these sort of things at home as well. But in small group, there's sort of another connection there where we're able to walk with others in the story. And I promise you, this is not enough. This is something. I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's not enough. You need to walk with other people in what you've heard. It's where the concrete sets. And I listen, I'm telling you, I know it's, well, that's another night of the week. We have the same stuff. We have the same challenges. But that's subduing your schedule. One of the things that Scott and I have discussed, and we have yet to discuss as the elders all together, but one of the things that's interesting about our schedule, I think is a relief for a lot of people because they're like, man, that's lean, and we can be about worship all week long, and it's not a bunch of busy work. And that can attract faithful people, but can also attract lazy people. They want to be lazy in eternal matters and want to be, have, you know, be, get a stamp of approval. Go be busy about temporal matters. Go be busy about things that won't really matter in eternity, but we don't have much to do, so, you know. What you want to realize is dominion is part of taking, part of your schedule is to be busy about things that matter in eternity. Not like busybodies, but engaging things that matter to direct your schedule. Let it be shaped by those matters. Is there anything else in the, more, in the world more important for us as a family on a weeknight than to sit with other people and talk about what God said Sunday? Not right now, there isn't. I won't give you a stamp of approval and say, well, your case is unique. I just can't do that. I can't personally. I can't. It's okay. You may have a unique season, and we're doing everything we can to make it available for you. We now have a Sunday night small group. For those that have mad stuff going on week long, it doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. Not implying that. We've made another opportunity for you on Sunday nights. I'm, I'm stepping over here because Bill and Deborah are, are leading that uh, Bud and Jill, and I know the Avans have connected that. I think y'all have. Opportunities to engage and walk in what you've heard so the concrete can set. You need it. I'm begging you. I'll make myself a fool begging you. I don't, I don't care. I'll, I, I'm begging because I care about you. I want this to find a home in you. You need it. It will never be easy to load the kids up and go do that. Unless it's at your house, and then it won't be easy because then you have to clean up afterwards. But it's good. Who says easy is, is best? So I urge you, with everything in me, please connect to a small group. Please. If you're visiting with us, you don't have to wait till you're a member to do that. You can do that now. In fact, that should sort of be the process where you're getting to know this people. Are we people that are walking in what we've heard? If we're not, don't join us. Where do you find out if that's true? In small groups. Where you get to know other people and find out what's going on in their lives. I have these guys up here for long. I'm sorry for the long. Lori's like, man, come on over here, Scott. We have a little something for Steve and Lori for uh, their sabbatical. Steve has, um, Brad went on his sabbatical last year. Steve and Brad are two elders that are holding down full-time jobs apart from what they're doing here. And they are on peer 
responsibility with me and Scott here on the staff. I don't want you ever guys to ever view me as the guy or Scott as the guy because God has ordained and called four men to lead this church right now. And there are three of them standing up here right now. Brad is sick this morning, and he's legitimately sick. He's not like watching a ball game or something. He's for real sick, so we took his temperature and everything. So, But these guys need a break. Y'all, built into our Constitution, Scott and I have a break every five years for three months. It's called a sabbatical. It's a time for rest and growth. And the same is necessary for these guys too. So Brad went on that last year, and Steve and Lori are beginning that. Steve uh, is beginning that. Lori's going to reap some of those benefits, but she still works at Crosspoint. So, I, you know, part of the, <laughs> she's still kind of in the mix, but we're going to try and guard Steve from much as just kind of the dailiness of stuff, decisions and things like that as possible. Our encouragement for you as a body is still see, see Steve as one of our elders, but if you have something that you're working through and you need sort of an elder to pray with you or walk with you through something, to seek me or Brad or, or Scott out. It doesn't mean Steve's off limits, but just kind of consider this is like his day off for the next three months. Now, that's just kind of a way to view it, you know, for the next three months in terms of the elder oversight. So um, pray for this period too. Pray for growth and pray for rest because those are necessary. This is hard work. I mean, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's good, but it's hard to sort of walk with other people in their uh, in their lives in a meaningful way, in a way that involves just really not, you know, more than just a J-O-B. It's hard, but it's a good good work. So pray for this family. Pray for Steve. We have a little something for them. Let me read the front of this. Scott wrote this on the front. Mark chapter 6, verse 31. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So we have a little thing for them to go to Fort Worth. It's not really a desolate place. It's kind of cool place, actually a good restaurant and a nice hotel for you guys to just get away for a little bit. And um, y'all are a tremendous blessing to this body, a tremendous blessing to me and my family. My kids look to you as Pastor Steve, and it's a blessing to serve this people with you and enjoy the Lord together. We want to pray with y'all with that. Come on, Scott. Let's pray for rest, and then we'll dismiss. God, we are so thankful for this family, so thankful for the journey together. I want to pray for Steve right now. Just pray for um, these next three months, starting today, to be a real time of rest and a time of growth. Steve is just, Lord, you have blessed us with a man who is all there, a man who is blameless in the way he serves this body, unreserved. Uh, There's no cruise control on the way he serves this body. There's nothing off limits in how much he pours himself out in in the life of his family. Lord, we are so thankful. We give you the glory. We ascribe to you the glory for how you've blessed us through Steve and his family. Thankful for this period, for these next three months. Just pray that Steve will just find rest. His family will find rest in you, ultimately, and uh, walking with the people of God. We love you, Lord. Thank you for our time together this morning. We ascribe to you glory and honor and strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.